Well, something happened this week that caught my eye and made me smile. Um, things that make me smile don't always make you smile. Well, that's okay. Um, something happened this week that made me smile, and it was a stolen uh, colon. Okay, how about that? And so <laughs> we can go lots of places with that statement. But there was a, a, a life-size inflatable colon that was used to teach the dangers of colon cancer to people, right? So they'd take it to races and all kinds of different places. And this is a man standing in the actual colon. And so, uh, but this week, the colon was stolen. And so uh, the... Uh, there's other jokes that we could pursue with that, but we won't because we're at church. But I would simply say this, that on Twitter, one person said this that made me laugh. You know what? To steal a colon, that takes guts. There you go. Uh, and so, there you go. I thought that was funny. And so, um, some of you will either laugh later or you just don't think that's funny at all because like, we're at church. We shouldn't talk about colons. And so, that's okay. And so, um, but... I say that because it ties in with everything we've been looking at here, right? Uh, Melody's song, as she sang for us, uh, Give Me a Faith Like. Why do we pray that prayer? Why do we sing that song? Well, we identify with that because we know there's times we need it. We know times of weakness come, times when it's like, oh man, this is hard, this is scary, feels like I'm up against a wall, and I don't know how to get through the wall. And today, as we kind of journey our way through Joshua chapter 6, um, I just appreciate both the song and that silly little statement because I think you know what, it does take guts. And so where do we find the spiritual guts to stand up and to, to be, to follow, to obey, um, to serve in those areas maybe that sometimes feel scary and intimidating for us? And uh, I think Joshua 6 gives us a beautiful example of what that looks like. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to Joshua 6 with me. We're going to read through this chapter together. Um, it's a little lengthy, but um, that's okay. It's good to read through uh, God's Word and get the context. And sometimes God may speak to you through something that I don't even talk about, but He does. And so that's more important than anything I have to say. And so we begin in Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Um, where you find these words being written. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Now just pause there a second, okay? If you have a mental image in your brain, a few weeks ago I put a map up there and I probably should have brought that back with me, but uh, the, the, the Sea of Galilee up to the north, the Dead Sea down to the south, and the Jordan River between, and the Israelites have crossed into the Promised Land after decades, almost centuries, actual centuries, of waiting to get there, right? And so they have been delivered in chapters 3 and 4 um, into the promised land. Their camp, their people are in the land. Um, God, last week, saw, prepared them spiritually, several steps of consecration he took them through. And now you finally get to Joshua chapter 6 where they're going to begin to take the land and to take ownership of it. Now, that's a scary feat in and of itself. We'll look at why that is in just a moment. But just remember what's going on as the people of Canaan have watched the Israelites move closer, they've heard the stories of all that God has done. They probably have spies that have seen the things that have happened with the Jordan River as they crossed it miraculously, as God split the waters for them. And so they, we've seen two different times in the, in the book of Joshua. Earlier, it was the people who were petrified, terrified. Last week in Joshua chapter 5, verse 1, it was the kings. It's the leadership of the land that is now very, very scared, very unsettled because of what's coming their way. And now you see the result of that. So what does Jericho do? Jericho is the first city that they're going to come to as they transition into this new land. It's the first city they're going to take. And so Jericho um, is, as we're going to see here in a moment, a well-fortified city. Because it was important. It was a strategic city, actually. And so it was well-fortified for those reasons. 
But what have they done? They've closed the doors, barred the gates. No one's going out. No one's coming in. We're here. We've got food. We've got water. We're going to try to outlast this and last as long as we can in this scenario. And so the gates are barred. Uh, Everybody inside is nervous. And the Israelites are probably excited to go and begin to finally take the land. And so God comes to them in verse 2 and says this. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho. Note that I've just highlighted that word see. We're going to camp out on that word here in a moment. I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. That's just kind of an interesting statement because your king, your everybody, all their, all their powers, right? I've delivered them into your hands. And so I, I don't want you to form ranks and go attack. What does he tell them? So I want you to march around the city once with all the armed men and do this for six days okay again strange military strategy not your typical thing hey we're going to go invade a country so let's just go march around its city for a few days and see if that does anything for us that's not typical strategy and so God asked them to do something that feels rather weird strange to them verse four have seven priests not only are they going to march they're going to have a, a trumpet band with them have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark on the seventh day march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets and so what are we doing here we're marching around the city it's not a huge city it's a city of probably eight ten acres not a huge city but long enough you can get a nice little tune going I guess as you march around the city with your trumpet band and they're blowing the trumpets and so verse 5 says when you hear them hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets have the whole army give you a loud uh, shout and then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up and everyone will go straight in. Verse six and seven goes on to say, so Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, he relays to them God's message, take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. Um, and when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. I would love to know, speaking of songs, what song was played on the trumpets as they went. Um, And we would maybe interpret or read back into it. When the saints go marching in, I don't know what you're playing, but I I wonder what they're playing as they go um, and march around the city. It would have been a visual interesting thing to watch from inside the city right you're seeing your enemy marching around your city at any moment you're waiting for them to unleash something and all they're doing is blowing trumpets and marching around your city and you're thinking what what are we doing here again it builds up the anxiety maybe a little bit inside of them verse 9 the armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard followed the ark and so you've got God in the center of all, the center of it all all right as they're marching ahead and behind all this time the trumpets were sounding but Joshua had commanded the army do not give a war cry do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout and then shout. All right. So again, not just an army marching, but a silent army marching around your city. All right. An interesting picture. And so he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp, spent the night there. Uh, Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. And the armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpet kept, trumpets kept sounding. And so on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp and they did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day, they circled the city seven times. And the seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord, your, for the Lord uh, your, has given you uh, this city. 
And so the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. And there's this little parenthetical note before we get to the results of their shouting and what God does. He just says, hey, before you do this, just note, this city is mine. And we'll talk about that in a moment as to why that is. The city and all that is in it is to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies that we sent. But we keep... but. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. And again, this just highlights that if you go back to the end of chapter five where we left last week, when Joshua meets the commander of the army of the Lord, and we think that's kind of a picture of Jesus probably in a lot of ways, and he asked the question, are you on their side or are you on our side? Whose side is he on? On neither side. I'm on God's side. And this is a picture of that, right? The Canaanites, as we're going to see, it was time for God to use the Israelites to bring judgment on them for some key things they had done over their centuries of being a civilization. Um, but that didn't mean Israel could just disregard what God wanted them to do. He says, I want you to take this seriously because I'm out for, for God's honor here, right? And so uh, don't try to do this differently. Don't go filling your own bag of, of this devoted treasure to God because it will not go well for you. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. And all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. And so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed within is destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. And Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. And so the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. And they brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. And so Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, cursed be the Lord, cursed before the Lord, excuse me, is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. In other words, beginning and end. And so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. Now it's easy to get to the end of that story. And if you know anything about the book of Joshua, this is probably the story that most people have heard, right? It's the story of the city gates and or the walls and falling down and, and God giving the city to them. And it's easy to kind of get to the end of the chapter and say, well, let's get to the good stuff where God finally gives them the land. But, but before we jump in there, I just want to take a moment to highlight uh, the, the walls that were there to highlight what the Israelites were looking at as they gathered there and as they marched around the city. What were they looking at? Because I think it's, it's easy for us to say, well, we know the outcome of the story, no big deal. But this was a big deal for these people. These people were facing something that they had never seen before. For 40 years, they had been marching in the desert, wandering around the desert as, as God allowed a generation of people to die off. They didn't have fortified cities. They didn't have a lot of scary things to deal with. I'm sure the desert had its own challenges, but nothing like what they were seeing here. In fact, it was seeing this. It was seeing these walled cities that led the previous generation, their parents and grandparents, to say, we can't take it. We can't go there. That's too big of a challenge. And so this generation of people is seeing something they had never seen before. 
six feet thick walls and two of them, double walls, uh, 40 feet high. So imagine you, an untrained army, a people who have been skilled at surviving in the desert, but you haven't been doing tactical training on how do we take a city with 40 feet walls and, and six, 10, 12 feet thick. Jericho was very much a gateway into Canaan. And in fact, as you read the book of Joshua, we're not going to go all the way through this book, but if you keep reading, what you're going to find is is that what Joshua does is he goes to Jericho. They're going to go to Ai, which is next, and they're going to go to the middle, split the country in half. They can make a south campaign and a north campaign to take the land. So Jericho is very strategic to that plan because there's one main road that goes north and south through this land. But they'd never seen anything like this city before. And there was anxiety. I'm sure there was nervousness. I'm sure there was a, how in the world are we going to accomplish this kind of feel to them? And so they faced something they'd never seen before, but they also faced something that they were ill-equipped for. They didn't have battering rams. They didn't have, I don't know, wall busters. I don't know what that means, but they didn't have things that they could just walk up to the wall and, and knock it down. They didn't have those kinds of equipment, training, or skills. They had no equipment for anything like this. And lastly, they faced their fears of the unknown behind those walls. They had no idea what they would meet when they finally got to the other side of the wall, right? A lot of us think, well, I'd, I'd like to pet the dog on the other side of the cage, but what happens when that dog is ferocious and te- tries to tear you to pieces? And like, well, I didn't think about that. I just wanted to pet the cute little dog on the other side of the gates. But all of a sudden, they're facing something ferocious. And there's a verse in there that talks about... Um, that there is a violence and um, a war story being told in this. And, and some read that, and, and there's a, there's a troubling part of the story. And why is that going on? Why is that the case? Why is, is there a, uh, a theme of that that runs through the book of Joshua? It's not because God was randomly looking for people that he could just go wipe them out. There is a very much a judgment aspect to what Joshua is doing. And as you read the Old Testament, you're going to find that that God will use one nation to bring judgment and justice to another nation. And it's going to, sometimes he'll use Israel. As Israel gets older and they walk away from God, God will use other nations to discipline and bring judgment and justice to them. And that is very much the case. It's what's going on here in the book of Joshua. In the book of Genesis, one of the reasons that if you, as you read that story, one of the reasons that Abraham and his descendants were sent to Egypt, there's a little verse in the book of Genesis that talks about the time has not been fulfilled for all these Canaanite nations. In other words, it's not time for judgment to come on them. I'm going to give them more time. And so I'm going to go send you to Egypt. You hang out there for a while while their time is fulfilled. Maybe that means he's giving them a chance to get right, to, to do right, uh, to end some things that, that the book of Deuteronomy, when, get, when Moses is making his last speech to the Israelite people, he is warning them, do not fall into the idolatrous acts of the people that you're going to conquer. And in Deuteronomy 12, verse 31, you find Moses saying this, you must not do the same to the Lord your God. Uh, in other words, don't worship their gods because they practice every detestable act and detestable not just to God, but in their treatment of one another. There was brutality, there was uh, a fierceness in how they dealt with each other, which the Lord hates for their gods. And then this little phrase, they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. What's that talking about? It's talking about in their, in their just the course of their worship in order to try to woo the favor of their gods. God, we need rain. Or God, I need food. Or God, I need, I'll throw my baby into a blazing hot furnace that was in the shape of their gods. 
And there's an archaeological dig somewhere in Israel. I saw an article of a while back. It just talked about all these little coffins, these little pots that had been found that had the, the remnants of those who had gone through this. And, and you think, well, this isn't just random. God's not sending Israel into a, just a place that was just minding its own business. God was tired of the death, tired of the brutality, tired of the evilness of this place. And he had given them time to be right and to do right. But eventually God's judgment and his justice will come. And so Israel is fulfilling part of that role in what they are doing here. And so as you read this and, and you think about this story, one of the things that I would like for you to think about is that there's a fierce group of people. I thought it was a long way around to get back to this point, okay? The whole point of all that was to say this. Israel had no idea what they faced on the other side of that wall. There were fierce, brutal, um, fearless people. Didn't care who they killed, how they did it. I mean, again, just there was a coldness, a callousness of heart. That, and so they had this fear of, okay, once we get past the wall, these people are fierce and they're scary. Again, that first generation of people. We're not going in there because those people are brutal and they're fierce and they're powerful. And so this is all the stuff that's, as they're marching around these walls, this isn't just a nice little stroll. They're dealing with fear. They're dealing with nervousness about how in the world are we going to get through those walls? And here our God is having us march around the city. This just doesn't seem to add up. And so knowing the end of the story, though, know, you know that God uses their act of faith and obedience. And the book of Hebrews highlights this act of obedience in Hebrews chapter 11 when it talks about by faith the walls fell because they showed their faith by most simple little marches that they did. And so people who experience walls falling down in their life in, in a good way, people who see things that you think, well, there's no way my life could change or there's no way that person would ever be interested in faith or there's no way that God could ever provide or there's no way that God would ever, and those things that seem like walls in our life, um, I think this is a story that kind of encourages us to say, okay, as examples, um, I don't have literal walls that I'm maybe walk, walking around, but there are walls emotionally, spiritually, relationally that are difficult. And we're thinking, how in the world do I proceed past that? And I think this story gives us some examples, some things to think about as far as how do we become people who experience breakthroughs in their faith. And so I want to highlight four things. The first one is the longest. So if we're still here at 11.55 on point one, don't panic. We'll be out of here quickly because the last three we'll go through quickly. You all should laugh. That was a joke. I'm not going to keep you here till 11.55, okay? Um, somebody start a timer right now and make sure I'm not, okay? Um, as I said, here's the four things. I want you to see number one is this. I think people who experience breakthroughs in their faith, number one, they arrive at God's view of the situation. And that's why I highlighted that little word, see. Because before God ever moved a stone, before he knocked down anything, he called Joshua to himself and said, see, I have delivered the city, its king, and its army into your hands. Now, what's Joshua looking if he sees? He sees a wall that's still standing tall, a king still on his throne, an army still poached to defend its city. That's what Joshua sees with eyes of, of flesh. But God says, I want you to see this differently. I want you to see that I have done something here. I am doing something here. And I want you to look at this through eyes of faith. And really that comes down to so many of the successes and failures in our walk with God is that it's all about how do you see it, right? With which eyes are you looking at your life, at your problems, at your obstacles, at your challenges? What kind of eyes are you looking at those things with? 
I love, I think it's Chris Seidman, he's a pastor I listen to every once in a while, who said this, who said that faith is when you see things from God's perspective and act according to his perspective. And I like that definition of what faith really is. Faith is, I, I see this from my eyes, from my fleshly eyes, I see how it is. But faith is saying, okay, from God's perspective, he sees this differently. He sees a different plan being navigated. He sees these different things at work. And so faith is, is my choice to see it from his perspective, not from mine. And we all wrestle with that in various ways. And what does Satan want you to think? What does Satan want to convince you of in your life? He wants, you to, convince, wants to convince you that, you know what, you can never change. That wall in your life, it can't be moved. That relational struggle cannot be fixed. That addiction cannot be broken. That thing in your life cannot be moved. And that's what Satan's always trying to tell you, that you just need to look through the eyes of flesh and, and do the math. There's no way Israel's going to defeat this. There's no way Israel can do this. They're just not enough on their own. And so our constant prayer needs to be, Lord, help me to see as you see. Lord, give me eyes to see the world as you see the world. And really, we've been praying through those four things about, about God's will and about our enemies and about um, leading through temptation, through temptation. But that last one, we said, God, there's a harvest. Help me to see and, and raise up laborers for a harvest that is around us. And Jesus said, from my perspective, when I look at the world, there are hearts and lives of people that are hungry and ready to receive me. And so there's a different way of looking, but what do we tend to see? Oh, that person would never be interested. That person's got this in their life and they're busy. They don't care about God. And so again, how do you choose to see? Jesus is inviting us to see everything in life from his perspective. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse four, uses this in a New Testament way, not marching around literal walls, but just in a spiritual battle, a spiritual struggle. Paul would write this, that the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world, which sounds a lot like Joshua 6 in some ways. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So what are strongholds? Well, in biblical language, strongholds are very much thought patterns, the way we think, the way we see situations. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so maybe the, some of the strongholds that you and I wrestle with, maybe it's things like the materialistic mindset that says, I am what I have. And so as long as I have plenty, I feel good about myself, I feel a sense of peace, but if those things begin to diminish or if my stuff is threatened, I lose my mind, I lose my peace, um, and I'm certainly not prone to be generous because I have to hold on to this because this is my identity. Or maybe it's the, I am what I do, and that I'm just wrapped around and entwined with, I lose my ability to do what I do, then all of a sudden, I am not myself. I can't find joy, I can't find a sense of happiness. Or, this is one that I struggle with, I am what people say and think about me. I, 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 my identity is wrapped up in what do people think of me? Are people happy with me today? Do people like me? Do people, are they pleased with me? And so I am what people say and think about me is a terrible way to live your life though, right? It's all about the fear of other people and am I making people happy? Am I doing that? And that is a terrible roller coaster ride to get caught up in. And so, because what are people? People are fickle. Some days they're you like you, some days they don't. And, and so what's a terrible way to live your life? Or how about I can never forgive that person or I am only as valuable as, or worthy as I look or appear. 
or I could never be loved by God and that idea, that stronghold of rejection and on and on the list could go of things that simply fall into that. Those are strongholds, those are mental, mental walls that I can't move past this wall because if, if I do something that people don't like, even if it's obedience to God, I, I, what, what about the wall? Am I gonna see it from God's perspective or, or my own perspective? God is asking us to see it differently. And so maybe you're a person struggling with an unbelieving friend, an unbelieving loved one. You think, oh man, how could this ever be different? There's a stronghold. I don't see how it could be different. You can look at it and give all the reasons from your fleshly perspective why it could never happen. Or you can see with eyes of faith and you can pray with eyes of faith. It says, God, I can't see it. I don't know how to walk, knock down this wall, but I need to trust you to do that. Or maybe you're a person who gets overwhelmed by the evil and the brokenness of this world. And you look at it and you think, oh my goodness, is there even a reason to get out of bed today? There's despair, there's hopelessness, the world's an angry place. It's a broken, ugly place. Why in the world should I even care about anything? But you read from a different perspective, you open this book and you begin to see what does God do in the midst of very dark times? That's when his people tend to shine very brightly when they're following him in obedience, when they're looking at the world through eyes of faith. That, oh man, they shine. And, and ultimately you read the end of the story and what does God do? God triumphs over all of that. And so there's not a reason to despair. There's not a reason to give up because through eyes of faith, I see it differently than I did before. And so, what does a person who has those wall falling moments tend to do? They tend to have eyes of faith, not eyes of flesh, okay? So number two, we'll go to these next two or three here very quickly. Number two, people with breakthrough faith tend to act out obedience while they wait, wait for uh, the breakthrough. Again, Israel's marching around walls for six days. They don't know idea why. God just told them to do it. Go march around the cities, blow your horns, and come back and camp. They have no idea why they're doing that. But what are they doing? They are obeying. They are doing what God says to do. And as they do so, what they find is that eventually God knocks down the walls for them. But they obeyed in the meantime. They obeyed as they waited. And so many times you and I say, well, God, I'll obey you when you knock the walls down and I see how it's all going to work versus God, I'm gonna, this sounds strange. This is a really weird thing for me to do and it feels weird and obedience to scripture oftentimes in this world, whether you're school, work, home, wherever you may be, it feels weird sometimes, but obey anyway. You see people who tend to see walls knocked down are people who tend to obey anyway. They obey in spite of not knowing how this is all gonna work out but they're trying to obey God, even though they don't. Number three, they live with an attitude of victory. They live with an attitude of victory. Um, again, I don't know this. Uh, this song analogy was probably appropriate um, because I don't know what the trumpet people were playing, but I'm thinking, I've got to believe they weren't playing a funeral dirge as they marched around the city, right? They're not out there playing the most sad, depressing, uh, they're not playing country music, in other words, okay? Um, ooh, there you go, wow, ooh, that, that, okay. Oh, wow, oh, there you go. All right, so, ouch, preacher just got personal. No, anyway, but they're not, they're not singing songs that are all about sadness and depression and how alone and, and how some of the sad songs, right? And so they, I have to believe that as they're singing, and they're not singing, as they're playing their horns, it had to be a little beat to it. it. had to be a little bit of hope and faith to it, okay? Again, I can't prove that. I just gotta think that that's probably the way it was because they're not taking a, 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 a 
a lap to say, hey, this is in memory of all that we've lost. This is a lap in honor of all that we're going to gain, that this is one step closer to all that God is going to do for us. And so there had to have been some hope mixed in with that. Okay, a little bit of opinion there, but I think I'm, I, I can prove that. Number four is this. Um, and this is probably the one that's in a sermon in and of itself, and we'll probably actually come back to this next week. But acknowledge, they acknowledge God by dedicating the first of what they have and are to him. And again, this is another sermon, but just quickly, just don't read too quickly past that little statement of this first city that God says, this is mine, all right? I'm giving it to you. You're going to own the land, but this is dedicated to me as a way of saying, you know what, God, you have been faithful. Um, you are worthy of our trust, and we trust that this first city is simply a step into much more that you're going to provide for us. And so God says, give me the first. And so throughout the Old Testament and New Testament as well, you find the idea, give me the first city, or give me your firstborn, dedicate them to me, redeem them back from, your, from me, give me your first portions, all of those first things that are in the, in the Old Testament that you find over and over that God just likes the principle of honor me first. And people who do that just tend to see some walls begin to fall down in their life, I think, um, as they trust God with that. And so here we are this morning as we wrap this up. Um, you and I, again, we face all kinds of walls in our walk, um, and they can be discouraging. Some people give up on faith. Some people give up on God because I, think, I just don't see how it could ever happen. Um, but I think of a story like this in Joshua chapter 6. If it does nothing at all, I pray that it would at least inspire you to stop and think again to stop and say, you know what? I'm gonna keep obeying. I'm gonna keep trusting. I'm gonna keep honoring God first. I'm gonna continue down that path because a story like this reminds me that God is in the business of knocking down walls for people um, who are out to honor him, who are out to obey him, who are out to see things from his perspective. And you, those are the kind of people who look back five, 10, 15 years like, man, look where God took me. Look where God took my life. I would have never thought that. I saw all these obstacles and reasons why things wouldn't happen, but look what God has done. And that's really what courageous faith leads us to. It just, it gives you a great testimony. And I hope that you'll embrace these and just grow some great stories in your own life too. Let's pray together.